I'm going to give you the Dwight Smith definition of revival tonight. There's never been a time in our nation's history when we've needed revival more than right now. I believe that had it not been for the first great awakening in our country, which happened in the 18 or the 1700s, had been for the preaching of George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Jonathan Wesley up and down the eastern shoreboard, we would never have even had America. It would not have happened. I believe if it hadn't been for the preaching of men in the second and the third great awakening, like Charles Finney up and throughout the northern states and men that were burdened to see a great revival in the 1858 prayer revival, which ushered in a million souls into the kingdom in two years, I believe had that not happened, there would not have been a civil war and there likely would not have been the abolition of slavery. I believe that God was moving in a mighty way in the early turn of the 1900s when in 1904, Evan Roberts prayed and prayed and prayed. In fact, he'd been praying across the century. He'd been praying for 11 years for God to move in Wales, and God did move. In fact, there was a preacher named Seth Roberts who prayed this prayer, Lord, send revival, and when you send it, don't let a seminary-trained preacher be the one to head it up lest you get robbed of your glory. Amen. He said, Lord, save some Welsh coal miner, some young person, and let them be the instrument of revival. Seth Thomas was his name. In fact, God answered the prayer of that preacher. And God used Evan Roberts in a mighty way. One month before the Welsh revival broke out and spread all across the British Isles and around the world, one month before... There was a testimony meeting of young people that were gathered, and a teenage girl by the name of Flora Evans, she stood up in that testimony meeting and said, I love Jesus with all my heart. And her bold declaration and her innocent faith was what sparked the early stages of the Welsh revival. A month later, Evan Roberts was burdened to leave where he was training and head back home to his home church. He got back to his preacher and he said that God had burdened him specifically to come and to preach. And the preacher said, well, you can't preach to the main congregation, but I'll let you preach to the 15 or 20 young people that are gathered if you'd like. And so he did. And it was in that small youth gathering that the Welsh revival broke out in its fullness. Over the next several months, it would spread across the British Isles. It would spread over into Europe. It would spread across the pond and into America. And it would take the world by storm. And literally thousands of people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of the revival that spread across the land. In 1904 and 1905, R.A. Torrey was praying that there would be a worldwide revival. And he wasn't just praying it. He was encouraging all of his people to pray that there would be worldwide revival. And before there was social media or a telegraph or a telephone, this began to spread all across the country. And it did. In different cities out west, Denver, Portland, and other places on the western coast, they would shut down the department stores from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock so that they could have prayer meetings. And all the department stores agreed to shut down at the same time so that there would be no undue or unfair competition. Then they began to pray that God would speak around the world and move around the world with this revival, and he did. 
R.A. Torrey and several other evangelists, both from America and Australia, went to Australia and New Zealand and preached. And at one particular time, in the Royal Exhibition Hall, R.A. Torrey preached a several-week meeting where 6,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ. It was a Welsh revival that sparked and spread around the globe. I believe that just before or just after World War II, America was in the throes of another great awakening. In another move of God, as a matter of fact, you can see as you study history both in Japan, in America, in Australia, and in other places around the world that there were mighty moves of God with tent meetings that were taking place from the Los Angeles crusade and around the globe. Many people talk about Billy Graham's famous 1949 Los Angeles crusade, but did you know that at the very same time in the very same city there was a preacher by the name of Jack Schuler who was preaching under a tent to the same amount of people that were coming in the same town. God was moving. God's moved in this country over and over again and around the world, and I believe he wants to do it again. But we're going to have to posture ourselves to have great revival. And it starts on an individual basis. Now, some people believe that the very last words Jesus spoke to the church were go. That's not true. The last words that Jesus spoke to the church were 70 years later in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, and it was the word repent. Why? Because in a period of 70 years, de decay had crept in, disobedience, distraction had crept into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way so as to divert them from the very cause that Jesus had rallied them to in the first place. And I believe that the word to the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ to the church of the 21st century is this, repent, do the first works, or else I'll come and I'll remove your candlestick. Look, if the Bible is open in front of us and we have available to us a copy of the word of God and we know what Bible truth is and we know what's right, and we purposely ignore what the Bible says and go our own way and live according to the flesh, then there will be consequences, right. not just for the church, but consequences for this old world. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 34, Paul said, Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. And his admonition was, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Now, let's go through Revelation 2 and 3 quickly, and I'm going to give you the Dwight Smith definition of revival tonight. I'm preaching to you on the subject, revival, the desperate need of the hour. Revival, the desperate need of the hour. Let's look at what the Bible says in Revelation 2 and verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now I want you to see it again. Again here in, in 
Revelation chapter 2, he is addressing churches. Listen to me carefully. The Lord Jesus Christ loves his church. And I'm speaking about the local New Testament body. He loves his church. It's what he died for. It's what he gave his life for. The Bible says that the husband's to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The Lord Jesus loves his church. Someone says, well, I don't need to go to church to worship God. Well, of course you don't. Nobody said you did. But if you don't go to church to worship God, you don't love Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. There can be no other understanding if you open your Bible and study it because the church is God's plan for this day and for this age. You can't disregard the church. Uh, you can't disobey the teaching of the Word of God through the local New Testament church and be right with God. You just can't do it. And so he comes to the church at Ephesus. Yes, this would be the church that, that Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians. This would be the church that he addressed in the book of Ephesians. Yes, this is the church that was the first one mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. And he said unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things saith he that hath the seven stars in his right hand. Now the stars were the pastors. God's man. Again, he refers to the angel. He writes unto the angel of the church. That's a reference to the pastor. Let me say this. The Lord Jesus Christ invented the church. You can't come up with a better invention. The Lord Jesus Christ invented the church, and he laid down the ground rules for the church. He's the one that came up with the church. He's the one that set up the leadership in the church. It's not going to bode any church member well to stand against the man of God called the pastor that he has placed as the leader of the church. That's God's man. That's God's angel. While pastors are disregarded, oftentimes they're besmirched, they're scorned, they're mocked, they're, they're uh, ignored. The Lord Jesus says, that's my angel. That's my candlestick. That's one that I love. The shepherd is dear to the heart of the Savior. What do we call the Lord? The Lord is my shepherd. He himself takes on the picture that he gives to the pastor that duty of being a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. Shepherds all throughout the Old Testament. When Jesus came and, and was born of a virgin, the angels came and appeared first to the shepherds. And what does he call the, the man that he has set over the flock? The shepherd. Disregard the preacher to your own peril. Disobey his words. Refuse to listen to his preaching. Refuse to regard what he has to say. But the Bible still says obey them that have the rule over you. And he comes writing to this church and he says, look, there's a lot of good things. Notice verse number two. He highlights their work and their labor and their patience. He highlights the fact that they've tried those which are say they're apostles and are not. So they've got discernment. They've got uh, patience to be able to bear under uh, heavy burdens in verse 3. They've had patience for, their, for the Lord's name's sake. They've labored and not fainted. They, haven't, they weren't quitters. But he said in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now watch this. I'm going to move quickly right now, so buckle your seatbelt. To Ephesus, he said, You've got a lot of good things going but you've left your first love. Watch it. He didn't say you lost your first love. You don't lose your love like you lose your car keys. <clears throat> you don't lose your love like you lose your phone. 
you leave your love. Some lady says, well, I just fell out of love with my husband. No, ma'am, you did not. You made a choice to love something else, to move on, to disregard your wedding vows. She said, well, I just fell out of love with my wife. No, sir, you did not. You disobeyed the Bible. You're living in violent rebellion against God. And you don't fall out of love with Jesus. You don't do that. You leave your love. You leave your love for something else. That's why the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You know what the church at Ephesus describes to us in Revelation chapter 2? Fundamental independent Baptist churches right now. Laboring for the Lord. Working. Patiently toiling on. Discerning. They've got the ability to try them which are, say they're something and they're not. They've got, they've got uh, bus ministries and active colleges and they've got Christian schools. They've got Sunday school ministries. But watch this. Many times it's done out of duty. Watch. You can work for the Lord without loving Him, but you can't love the Lord without working for Him. And there's a lot of churches that are filled with people who are at the work and they're toiling day in and day out, but they left their love for the Lord Jesus a long time ago. And what they need to do is need to come back and get the fire rekindled once again. What they need to do is get some oil in the engine so that it can run smoothly once again. What they need to do is come back and get God renew their heart once again. What they need to do is choose to walk away from what they've chosen to love. Hey, some people are in love with the ministry. I want to be in love with Jesus. If I'm in love with Jesus, the ministry will fall in its proper place. I want to say what we need now more than any is we need some people that will be in love with Jesus. Can I say this? It bothers me. When I travel around the country and preach in churches just like this one all across this land and there are young people, teenagers, a few young adults. There are older people, 50, 60, and above. But somewhere between 20 and 50, we've missed it. What, what's the cause of that? Well, surely there's the world. Surely there's the flesh. Surely there's the devil. But it might do us well to look in the mirror because I think sometimes we've given an example, sadly, of working and serving for the Lord without loving Him. There's little joy. There's little peace. There's little thrill in it all. But you know, there's no better advertisement than a satisfied customer. You know what happens when you get right with God and you get revived? You become a satisfied customer. To the church at Ephesus, he said, hey, I've got somewhat against you. You've left your first love. Look at what he tells them. Verse number five, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember where you left it and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Notice verse six. He says, but this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Notice verse seven. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse number 80 says, Unto the church, or the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works in tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. He comes to the church at Pergamos. Now to the church at Smyrna, he didn't give an indictment. It was only one of two churches that he did not give an indictment. 
of these seven churches listed. He comes to the church at Pergamos and he says to the church at Pergamos, hey, he said, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. What was this? The doctrine of of loving, filthy lucre and money, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Balaam was a prophet who, when you first find him in the Bible, looks like a pretty good prophet, but in the end, he, for the sake of a little bit of extra cash in his 401k, would lead a nation to increase great idolatry and great adultery in the nation of Israel and invite the judgment of God down upon it. He says in verse number 15, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. <clears throat> what was this? All right, here was a, a church, Pergamus, which is an actual town, by the way. They're in the Middle East. They're in the Mediterranean. A town of Pergamus, which had a church in it, and the church was tolerating the doctrine of Balaam. False doctrine. You know, it's possible for a church that was founded upon the Word of God and started by the Lord Jesus Christ to get away from His Word and away from the head? They were tolerating false doctrine that would allow idolatry and adultery, and then they said, you've got those which, which hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. What was that? What was that? Okay, that's putting, the, like I said last night, putting the preacher up on a pedestal where he can do no wrong and just about might as well be worshiping him. We blame the Catholics for it, but there are several independent Baptist preachers that are up on a pedestal and they need to get down off the pedestal and get on their knees in the face of Jesus and in the presence of the cross. He said, here's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Here's the clergy up here, and we're nothing but lowly laity down here, and we don't know anything. They're the ones that interpret the Bible, and they're the ones that have all the answers, and we can't figure any of that out. we got to ask them what, we should, what kind of clothes we should wear, and what kind of car we should drive. It's eliminating the conscience. All right? He said, I hate this. He said, you there at Pergamos? Get it right. Repent. Look at what he says. Revelation chapter 2. Notice what the scripture says in verse number 16. He says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Uh, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira. Now how many churches have we covered? Three, Ephesus, Sardis, Pergamos. Thyatira is number four. Right, these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants. Watch now. He said, now to the church of Thyatira, you've got some good things going on. Charity, service, faith, patience, works. He said, but I've got someone against you. You're allowing this loudmouthed, bossy woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. What was she doing? She was a woman preacher. You said, 
Preacher, don't you believe in women preachers? No. You say, why? Because the Bible's against it. Number one, it says it's a, not, that a woman's never supposed to usurp authority over a man. Plain and simple. You say, you're not for the ERA and the feminist movement? No. It's wicked. In fact, I'll go a step further and say it's straight out of hell. Amen. And ladies, if, if you would stop for a moment and think, you would stop to yourself and say, this isn't helping me. The feminist movement in this country and the ERA movement hasn't helped one woman. Hasn't helped her at all. Why? Because its very premise is against the word of God. We don't need another loudmouth, bossy woman. And we certainly don't need a loudmouth, bossy woman in the pulpit. And this woman Jezebel, look at what she did. Verse number 20. She called herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every man uh, and every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which not, have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come. He that overcometh and keepeth my works and to the end to him will I give power over the nations. Watch this now. He's saying, hey, repent, you in Thyatira. You're allowing this loudmouth, bossy woman, so-called prophetess, to come in and to preach false doctrine and to seduce into the bed of immorality. He said, I'm not for it, I'm against it. And if you side with her, you're siding against me. Woo. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the living God. Sounds like they had been distracted. I want to tell you something. If you're okay with women preachers, loudmouth bossy women that are teaching false doctrine, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which thing God hates, if you're okay with the doctrine of Balaam, guess what you're not doing? Winning people to Jesus Christ and getting them baptized and getting them discipled. You're not having children. And when a church is not having children, not having uh, spiritual children, they're not fulfilling the Great Commission. What's the problem? Well, let's look at the problem. In Revelation 2 at Ephesus, they'd left their first love. At Sardis, they were holding true and doing right. Pergamus, they had allowed false doctrine. In Thyatira, they had allowed a, a, a usurpation of authority. Look at Revelation 3 in verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Hey, let me say something to you. The church that I grew up in in Minnesota used to have two revival meetings a year and a missions conference and a vacation Bible school and a bus ministry. And they used to be everlastingly at it. And they used to see people saved in great droves. Well, I guarantee you the population in Minneapolis, where I grew up, hasn't diminished since that time. It's only increased. There are 380,000 in Minneapolis right now. This church used to have a camp. They used to have a FM radio station. They had a seminary <coughs> that still exists, but really it would be better if it didn't. Do you know how many revival meetings this church has had since 1991? Are you ready? Two. Since 1991, two. 
Now, one of two things is true about that church. Either they're so spiritual they don't need revival, or they're living in absolute disobedience to the Lord. They still have a name, but they're dead. They've sold their camp. They've gone from an FM station to an AM station. They've done nothing but They've, they've done nothing for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ as far as evangelism, or they've done very little. They've got a name that they're living, but they're dead. Now, are you listening to what I'm saying? The same thing that happened there could happen here. Just because great victories have happened in the past doesn't mean that's guaranteed God's blessing right now. Every day I need fresh oil. Every day I need fresh manna. Every day I of God. Every day this church needs the fresh breath of the Holy Ghost upon it. And every day, every one of us ought to be praying for it. Amen. Not going on past. You know, there's a lot of churches that are called used to churches in this country. They used to do something for God. They used to see people saved. They used to have the power of God upon them. They used to. I don't want to be a part of a used to church. I want to be a part of a church that's moving forward and that is charging hell with a water gun. I want to be part of a church that is seeing people saved right now. I want to be a part of the work of God right now. And the church here in Sardis had a name that they were alive, but they were dead. Notice what the scripture says in verse number 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Look at what it says in verse number 7. Unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy. He that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Philadelphia was the other church of which the Lord said nothing negative. I don't know about you, but I'd kind of like to be like the church there in Smyrna. And I'd kind of like to be like the church there in, in, in Philadelphia. Watch now. Look at what he says in verse number 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This was a church that made God sick. I'm talking about a church. I'm not talking about a bar. I'm not talking about a nightclub. I'm not talking about some honky-tonk joint. I'm talking about a church. He went for a cold drink and he get, get, didn't get it. Went for a hot drink, didn't get it. Neither cold nor hot, not refreshing. He got lukewarm. He <laughs> spit it out. Why? Because they thought they had it all and they didn't have any of it. Look at what he says in verse number 17. He says in verse 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You know, there's only something worse than being blind. You know what it is? It's being blind and not knowing it. And there's a lot of churches that are churches in name... They've, they used to have the power of God. 
They maybe even right now think they're just fine, that they don't need to repent, that they don't need a revival meeting, that they don't need an evangelist, that they don't need some young stump-jumping preacher, a little blonde-headed midget from North Carolina spitting over the first three rows and pounding the pulpit and calling them to get right with God. They're fine just the way they are. And God says, look at what he says, look at what he says. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, you said, preacher, God must be done with these churches. I mean done. No, but he's close. Look at where he is in verse number, verse number 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Watch it. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Wow. And the verse right there, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. What was the last word that Jesus spoke to the church? Was it go or repent? Go or repent? Repent. And when a church repents, you know what all of a sudden happens? They hear the Lord Jesus knocking and they say, Who's that knocking? Well, go check. <gasps> it's Jesus. What's he doing outside our church? He should be in our church, front and center. How'd he get out there? Whatever it is that caused him to get out there, let's get right with God about it and open the door and let him come in. We need his light. We need his warmth. We need his healing touch. And we need his voice. He's out there. He needs to be in here. I've preached in churches around the country where Jesus has been outside. The church could go on fine without him. A Chinese pastor came from the persecuted churches in China to visit America. And the man taking him to the airport on the way to the airport said, so what do you think about the churches in America? You know what that Chinese pastor said? He said, you know what I think about the churches in America? I'm amazed at what they can get accomplished without the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have his proper place. Jesus is not high and exalted. We're not bowing before him. We're fighting and squabbling over things that don't matter. We think we're just fine and we're in desperate need. You said, Brother Smith, you were going to give the Dwight Smith definition of revival. All right, you ready? Here it is, plain and simple. Some people say revival is falling in love with Jesus all over again, and you're not going to get an argument with me there. Another person, Brian Edwards, said revival is a people saturated with God. I believe that. But here's the Dwight Smith definition of revival. Are you ready? It's my spiritual senses heightened. My spiritual sentences heightened. Did you see what he says? He says in Revelation chapter 3, in verse number 18, he says, Anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. You know, one of my prayers on a daily basis is this, Lord, help me to see. Help me to see myself for who I really am. Not for who I think I am. Not for who I want others to think I am. But for who I really am. Lord, help me to see. When I'm not revived, my, blur, my vision is blurred, 
and I can't see real good. How does that work driving down the highway? How does that work, ma'am, when you can't really see very good and you're putting together a recipe? Well, it doesn't work for you and the people eating it. How does it work when you can't see and you're at work trying to put together an instrument or some kind of technical, technical uh, advance? It doesn't work. Lord, help me to see. Look at not only my sight, but my hearing. Look at Revelation 2. Look at what he says in verse number 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse number 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 29. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse number 6 of chapter 3. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Look at verse 13. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Verse 22. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Revival is my hearing. Once again, all, all right. At the beginning of the summer, we put up a pool, and I went swimming in, and I don't know what happened, but my ears got stopped up. How many of you have ever experienced that? I hate that because I can't hear very well. People are saying things to me, and I'm trying to nod and be pleasant, but I can't hear what they're saying. You know what the Lord does when we have revival? Is we get our ears unstopped and we say, oh, those sweet sounds. I didn't hear them before. Oh, when the preacher preaches, it's something that helps me. Why couldn't I hear that before? You see, I need my senses, spiritual senses, heightened. What about the sense of taste? Psalm 34 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know what happens when you get away from God? You get your taste buds dulled. How many of you have had too hot a cup of coffee at times and it's burned taste buds on your tongue? Boy, there are a few things in life I hate more than that. Can't taste anything real good for the next three days until all those cells get rejuvenated and revived. Watch this. When I get revived, my taste buds all of a sudden start to taste that the Lord is good. He's not bad like the devil's been telling me, like the flesh has been telling He's good. What about this? The sense of smell. You know, when you're not revived, you don't know the difference between the smell of a skunk and the smell of a rose. You know what your mantra is if you're not revived? Don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. <laughs> Excuse me, we judge all the time. Ladies, you wouldn't want a skunk living in your house. I mean, I'd hope you wouldn't. You would certainly be blessed by some roses every once in a while, brought home by your man. Can I get an amen right there, ladies? <laughs> Why? Because it smells beautiful. It fills the room with a fragrance. How about John chapter 12? The woman brought Jesus an ointment, box of ointment, and break it and poured it on his head and on his feet, and the aroma filled the whole room. And we're still smelling it today. What was it? It was the fragrance of sweet, unabated love on the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, do you know the difference between the rose of Sharon and a dead carcass? A friend of mine named Alton Beale, I don't know if he's preached here or not, but Alton Beale is a very dear friend of mine. And on his table, one of his tables in his office, he has a great big bone that's the part of the spine of a whale. I said, where'd you get that? He got it at the beach, and 
he let it sit out for several months until it was sun bleached, and then he made sure he put Clorox on it to disinfect it. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, one of the little sp- part of the spine of the whale. It's about this big around. It's amazing. I said, what happened? He said, well, my kids and family and I, we were on vacation. He said, we're out on the beach, and all of a sudden, as we were walking along, they said, oh, what's that awful smell? It was this old beached whale, dead, rotten flesh. And they got in there and looked at it. It was terrible. They couldn't even stand the stink. Well, my friend Alton, a few years ago, got his feet knocked down from underneath him playing a basketball game. He hit the back of his head. It jolted part of his brain, and he hadn't been able to smell since. Oh, he said, I can handle it. So he climbs right in the carcass and works and works and cuts and works and gets this bone. Can't smell anything. Hey, can I say this? I know some Christians that are right in the midst of flesh and decay, and they can't smell it at all. Kind of like a hog farmer. You go to their house and you say, what's that smell? And they say, what smell? They've gotten used to it. Are you listening to me? There are some Christians that have just gotten used to the smell, and they need God to reach rejuvenate, revive their sense of smell. What about touch? The Bible warns in Hebrews that we can get to a place so far from God that we're past feeling. So hard, so calloused, so resistant to the things of God. You know what we need? Revival. A renewal of our spiritual senses. Would you bow with me in prayer?